power dressing indeed. So when you told me you wanted to come as an angel for the nativity, Johnny, this week, you were joking, were you? Well, this is awkward, isn't it? Good morning, everybody. Welcome, especially if, this, if you're joining us for the first time. The preacher does not always look like this. <clears throat> and especially if you're joining us, as you all are, here as we begin Advent. Advent. Actually, if you look at my rather fetching attire, which I can name to you, cassock underneath, surplus, stole, this, this purple sash is what's known as a stole. And it's supposed to recall to us the towel that Jesus wore when he, when he wiped the feet of his disciples, when he knelt, that's not going to work, when he knelt down to wipe the feet of his disciples. So it's this, this robe of service. Um, and it's worn diagonally like this when you're a beauty pageant winner, like my, no, when you're a deacon and you get to wear it straight over both shoulders. I'm not going to illustrate because I'll never get it back on. Straight over both shoulders when you're a priest. And if you want to know more about deacons and priests, you can talk to me afterwards. But it's purple. It's purple this morning. It's purple because it's the first Sunday of Advent. It's the first Sunday of Advent. And Advent in the church calendar is a special time. It's a special season. It's a special moment. It's a purple moment. It's a special moment. And I had a special moment yesterday when we were putting up our Christmas tree. I know I am normally the Scrooge in my house who holds out until as far into December as possible. I've never quite made it to Christmas Eve, but that's who I normally am. But one of my kids was isolating, and we needed some holiday cheer. We needed something to lighten the gloom. And yesterday, we were putting this tree up, and joy just bubbled up inside of me. Bubbled up inside of me, and this kind of this unexpected this unexpected amount of joy, the unexpected intensity of joy. I was watching my littlest one toddle around, deciding which baubles belonged on the tree and which ones needed to be chucked across the room. And I felt this joy bubbling up inside of me. And something weird in this moment, something weird happened to time. Something weird happened to time. It kind of, it kind of slowed down. It kind of assumed gravity, this particular moment. It slowed down, and that moment expanded. I was really present. Have you ever had that sensation where everything else stops existing? But in the middle of this moment, really present and quite emotional. But more than this, this moment, it started to expand to include some of the past I started to remember Christmas, the, the ghost of Christmas past, maybe. No. Um, I started to remember past Christmas. Think about, think about um, our previous house. Thinking about friends that have moved away. Thinking about things that we'd done at previous Christmases. And it all came into this joyful moment. And it opened outwards into the future as well. I won't make the ghost joke again. Um, it opened outwards into the future in imagination, imagining what next Christmas will be like when there's another baby in my extended, extended family, not my own, but that's how rumors start. In my extended family, there's, there'll be another baby around the table next Christmas. And my kids will be that year older. And then after that, there'll be another year older. I know, right? And, and, and then after that, another year, eventually, there'll be teenagers. And Christmas will look really different. It expanded into the past. 
and into the future, and it was held in this one special moment. I wondered, there is a point, I wondered if this is a little bit of a glimpse, a, a, half, a half of an echo of how God sees time. Because God's eternal. God doesn't exist inside time. Time's actually a gift from God, right? It's something that he made. And so everything is present to him all at the same time. And it's deeply joyful. Deeply joyful. I wondered if this was a glimpse into how God thinks about time. So I come to Advent. I come to this purple time with this stole that doesn't behave. Um, Expectant today for God to speak to us. And more than that, to draw us into his time. To draw us into his time. So I wondered, will you do something strange for me this morning? I've done something strange. No. Um, <laughs> will you do something? If you're wearing a watch, just pop your, pop your hand up. Like, pop the hand up with the watch on. Will you just take it off? And we'll pass the baskets back round. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> just take it off. Put it in your pocket. Put it face down. Put it somewhere where you can't see it. If it's tracking your heartbeat somewhere in Silicon Valley, Apple will be panicking that there's been a strange event there and everyone's hearts have stopped. But that's okay. We can all imagine that. Take it off. Put it in your pocket or put it face down. Because clocks have changed the way that we think about time. When the clock was invented, it changed the way that we think about time because it lets you divide a day up into units and think about what those units should be spent on. It gives you a measure of control over your time. And that's what the whole of our world of work is based on. Quantifying time, giving it a value, and using it. But if we didn't have clocks, when we didn't have clocks, we'd still have time. Time's a gift from God. Time's his creation. And actually, he has ideas about how we interact with time. And Advent is this purple time. Another purple time in the church calendar is Lent. What links these periods? They're periods of preparation. They're moments of preparation, times when we get ourselves ready to live in the light of Jesus again. And what does that look like in Advent? I think that the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth has a lot to teach us, and I think it teaches us that it looks like receiving hope. I don't know if the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth is one that you're particularly familiar with. It's not got donkeys. It does have an angel. There's no star. But it's really interesting that this, this story, this is the place where Luke chooses to start his account of Jesus' birth, right? So it's wrapped up in that. It's how, it's how we come to the birth of Jesus in the Bible, in Luke's story. And one of the first things that we learn is that they, the, both Elizabeth and Zechariah, they come from priestly families. So Zechariah comes from the house of Abijah, Johnny, um, <laughs> for later. No, I'm kidding. Um, and Elizabeth herself is also from the house of Aaron, right? Why tell you that? Why would Luke mention that? Well, go with me a little bit. Give me a little bit of leeway. It's a little bit like saying that 
Zechariah was educated at Eton, and their families had just missed each other at Val d'Isere on several occasions, but that they finally met after Elizabeth's gap year while they were both studying at Oxford. Darling. They're part of the elite. They've got a heritage and possibly an accent. It tells you something about their status in society. And more than that, the Bible goes on to say not just are they special, not just are they part of this priestly elite, they, um, they're even righteous, right? And these are the pieces of information that Luke gives you to build up to this massive source of shame. They are childless. They have no children. For some people in the room, maybe this last, that's part of your story. But in a day and age in which we discuss whether even having children is ecologically responsible, it might not seem like the biggest deal. In this historical moment, not being able to have children is being cursed, right? Shame, stigma. Think again about what Elizabeth says when she finds out that she's finally pregnant. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace from among the people. Taken away my disgrace from among the people. Elizabeth, this verse tells us, was living with shame. She's living with the visible stigma of not having a child. That's not easy to hide, right? She can't hide it. She's living, she's living even more than that with this sense of not being able to do the one thing that she should really be able to do, right? That's the sense. I mean, without being crude here, they don't exactly have the science to figure this out, but Luke goes the whole way and blames Elizabeth. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they have their priestly heritage, but they've let the side down because they haven't produced a son who can follow in their footsteps. And they are disappointed. They've given up hoping. And it's into this context that an angel arrives with good news about a baby. It's not Jesus yet. Don't get ahead of yourself. But it's so unexpected. It's so not the script. And it's just so good. It's just so generous. It's just so kind. It's something that can't, couldn't be hoped for. It's something that Zechariah can't even bring himself to believe is happening, even when the angel says it is the answer to his own prayer. He was there when he prayed those prayers. He can remember them. They're part of his life. So I think I had an experience which, which has some echoes um, to this kind of an experience when I was 21. I'd been married for a year, and I was working in a relatively low-paid office job. My wife had just started working as a solicitor on a training contract, and we were trying to figure out if we could buy a house with no money. And the answer was really surprisingly, no, <laughs> we couldn't buy a house with no money. And we were starting to pray about it a bit. Let me be honest with you. My wife was praying about it to the extent that she had a, a tick list for God. She, she knew what this house needed to be like. I was praying about it in the sense of, God, 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was about it. In the middle of this, our landlords offered um, to let us buy the house that we were living in. We were like, ah, oh, that's really lovely. We have no money. Are you aware of this? Um, so exciting times. But when we went back to them and said, we have no money, their response was, that's fine. We'll give you the deposit to buy this house. We'll give you the deposit. To I was very excited. Um, I went to talk to lenders to get a mortgage. And I very quickly found out that a 10% discount on a house is not the same as having a lot of money in your bank account to buy a house. And so tail between my legs, I went back to these lovely people that had offered us to, to help us buy this house. And I said to them, I'm so sorry. We, we literally have no money. You don't understand. We've got nothing. We can't, we can't even do a 5% even with a discount. It's not going to work. And I really want it to work. And they just looked at me with mild bemusement in their eyes, explained that they know how house buying works and that they actually wanted to put the money in our account so that we could buy the house off them, that they loved Jesus, that Jesus had been generous to them and that they wanted to bless us. I was blown away. This was so generous. This was so good. This does not happen every day. It was a shocking gift. And for Zechariah, the news goes way beyond a house deposit, right? When the angel says he's having a baby, mind blown. And I love Zechariah's response. It's so real. Can you hear the years of hurt in it? Are you for real? I can't deal with another disappointment. This is Zechariah stood beside the altar of incense, for those of you wondering why he's on a trip. Come on! It's not like Zechariah and Elizabeth haven't tried. As each month has rolled around, a little bit of hope has been chipped away. That's how this works. Month after month after month, I think that we all know what that feels like, whether or not you've been through that specific experience. It's that sense of trying to tell yourself, it might be better tomorrow when you stopped believing that yesterday. Like Zechariah, Elizabeth has spent years shifting from hope to disappointment. Feeling the shame it brings because she hasn't lived up to other people's hopes for her. But this unexpected gift is going to change both their lives. It's particularly, let's think about how it's going to change her life. What does she say? She says that God has taken away my disgrace among the people. She will no longer be the recipient of that kind of sympathy that just reinforces what's wrong and what you haven't got and what you are not and isn't real. She's no longer going to be the butt of the less sensitive jokes, shall we say. She's no longer going to be alienated when she walks into her room and her peers stop having the conversation that they've been having because it was about their kids.
the laughter and the joy ceasing and turning to ash just because she walked into the room. Her disgrace has accompanied her into every aspect of her life. And now, God has replaced that with his grace, with his generosity, with his unexpected gift. Instead of disgrace, his grace is going to accompany her into every aspect of her life. It's like a fractal. Frozen fractals all around, as my favorite Nordic philosopher says. It's like a fractal. What's special about a fractal is that wherever you zoom in, wherever you look, you see the same pattern. Wherever you look, wherever you zoom in, you see the same pattern. And these are pervasive in nature. Think about a fern leaf. You see the same structure wherever you look. That's going to be her story. And I think, I think something similar happened for me with my house deposit. Let me inflict upon you pictures of this house. First, I believe we have the lounge. This is a beautiful lounge. It has alcoves, which I built shelves into for books. Books are very important to me. My new house doesn't have alcoves, and I miss them. Let me show you. Let me show you the kitchen. Again, this was not how it looked when we arrived, but it was how it looked when we left. It was designed by my wife, built by my father and I. And um, when it was finished, she was pregnant, and the new oven smelt funny, so she wouldn't go into it for many months. But that's another story. And this is a toilet. Um, the bathroom was very small. It was difficult to get a picture. But again, back to brick, made this way. This house was our home, but more than that, it was more than that. It was a fractal-like blessing from God. I didn't know this at the time, but that year of our marriage, the year in which we were given this gift, was the only one in which my wife and I would have incomes that a bank would look at to figure out a mortgage for the first 12, one, two, 12 years of our married life, right? Shortly after we bought our house on the basis of this unexpected gift, I felt God was calling me to go to university, and full of enthusiasm, I did that. And full of enthusiasm, I stayed there for many, many years. I did a BA, and I did an MA, and then I got funding to do a PhD, and not content with being a student for nine, nine years at that point, I thought, I know, I can find someone else to fund me to be a student for even longer. And I went to the Church of England, and they said, go, go to theological college so that you can learn to wear robes. Um, none of that will get you a mortgage. We wouldn't have been able to buy a house. If we, if we couldn't have bought a house, chances are, doing my MA, doing my PhD, it's unaffordable. If we hadn't had that gift, we would have been renting, it would have been more expensive, it, we wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Without the house, I'm not sure we would have decided it was a good time to have our own kids. Without this house, we couldn't have moved to where we are now when we felt God was calling us to move if we hadn't had a house to sell. I was reflecting on this not long ago when I wrote a letter to the people that gave us this money and played out on paper the ways that this gift has reached into every aspect of my life. And that's why I show you this toilet. That's why I tell you 
this story. It's not because house deposits and children are in any way gifts of equivalent value. I tell you this story because like Zechariah and Elizabeth, an unexpected gift changed my life. God's grace through that act of generosity reached into every area of my life. And the fractal-like pattern that you see when you zoom in on any specific thing in my life, it has an impact on all of it. And that is what God's grace does. It leaves no area of life untouched. It takes Elizabeth's disgrace and replaces it with favor for everyone to see. Replaces it with favor for everyone to see. You see the same thing wherever you look in her life. You've taken your watches off so you don't know how long I've been going, which is good news. But the final thing... I want to say, especially after we've already heard one sermon today. Um, The final thing that I want to say today, the comeback will be brutal. Um, The final thing that I want to say today is that the unexpected gift that changes their lives brings hope. And hope is this contagious thing. It goes beyond them. It's not just for them, it's for the people around them. The promise that the angel gives Zechariah is that this child is a special one. Not only is this a gift that will be a joy and a delight to him, but the promise is that all the things that he's ever believed are important as a priest. They're all coming true. And this child is part of that. Zechariah's response is really interesting, isn't it? We talked uh, probably a bit more about Elizabeth so far. But Zechariah's response is really interesting. How can I be sure? How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well on in years. What does that tell you about Zechariah? I think one of the things it maybe suggests is that his life is a hope-free zone. A hope-free zone. It's either certainty or I am not interested. Think about what this angel has said to him. This is Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, by the way. That running sore spot in your life, Zechariah. That source of shame. That source of disappointment. That, that anxiety, this thing, this negative energy in your life. It's going to be transformed It's astonishingly good news. Do you know what? It's actually what the gospel says to you and to me today. But Zechariah, he can't even hope for that. He's too used to disappointment. His response isn't hopeful, it's cynical. That's great. Sounds amazing. Have you got any proof? The Bible just says that it's Zechariah's unbelief that makes the angel not let him speak, but it doesn't tell us really about the connection between unbelief and speaking. But I wonder if this cynicism is a part of that. Or it might just possibly be that Zechariah has told a random stranger that his wife is well on in years, and the random stranger has gone, mate, you need some help. You should shut up for a while. 
But the angel, and ultimately God here, is offering Zechariah and Elizabeth a new story. It's one that gives joy for sorrow. It's one that takes pain and transforms it. It's one that is truly good news. And that is a hopeful story that challenges the story that Zechariah is used to telling about himself. Hearing good news can be surprisingly unsettling, I think. But this message is not too good to be true. Zechariah and Elizabeth really did have a son called John, and he really did call people back to God, and he really did lay a foundation for Jesus to come. And that's a story for more weeks. But the unexpected gift really did change their lives and give them a hope to share. And that is what God wants to do for you and I this morning. Advent is this purple time, right? It's a time of preparation. What are we preparing for? We're preparing for Jesus. God wants to invite you into his time. Maybe for you, taking your watch off and sitting with Jesus is part of what that looks like for you during Advent. But this Advent, I believe the invitation for us as Trinity Church is, as Christoph Blumhart puts it, to learn to live in what is coming from God every day and to carry a light from this awareness into the darkness around us. What is coming from God for you today? It's a gift. It's good. It's hope. It's Jesus. We're preparing for the King to come because Christmas didn't just happen. It happens. Let me explain. Christmas happened in Bethlehem long ago when a child was born. But Christmas shows us that God is committed to coming to be with you and me. That's who this God is. God was in Jesus uniquely, but Jesus shows us that God wants to be with you and I every day of our lives. Christ was born at Christmas, but he can be born in you today. Learning to live like that's true is what Advent is all about. I'd love it if you'd pray with me today. I'm going to pray a short prayer. That I'd love it if you'd pray after me, um, possibly out loud. But if you're not comfortable with that, just pray it in your heart. Father God, I thank you that you are generous. I want to receive your gift today. I turn away from anything that would prevent me. Please come into my life and give me your hope. Amen.